0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Dan Hill. He is the author of many blockbuster books that are changing the face of business around the world. Many people call his book a revelation. I've just completed the book Emotionomics, Leveraging Emotions for Business Success. He's also written a book called About Face, The Secrets of Emotionally Effective Advertising. And he has another book called FaceTime. He is the CEO of Sensory Logic at SensoryLogic.com. He is changing our understanding of advertising, of sales, of understanding what it means to communicate with other beings, what it means to bring in business, and how brain science is changing everything we thought we understood about business. One of the other things I really love about his work is that when women say that they do things emotionally and men say business is business from the old model of business, Dan Hill is changing the paradigm. In fact, we make our decisions emotionally most of the time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Dan Hill to its Rainmaking Time. Good afternoon.
1: Thank you so much. It's a wonderful introduction, and uh, I'm fascinated by the conversation we're about to have.
0: (laughs) I am too. I want to talk about business is business for a moment, because everything you're writing, at least with emotionomics, leveraging emotions for business success, is confirming that decisions are emotionally based, purchases are emotionally based, sales are emotionally based, advertising is emotionally based. What does this mean to us today?
1: There's a wonderful book called uh, Descartes' Air by Antonio Damasio, which really uh, helped spur me when I started the company. Uh, Descartes, of course, most famously uh, related with the comment, I think, therefore I am. And as Damasio would point out, Descartes was dead wrong and yet Western culture and particularly Western business practices have utterly followed Descartes for the last 300 years. It is not that I think and therefore I am, is that we had the capacity to smell to detect odors. That is the origin of the brain, a small node atop the spinal column. We are overwhelmingly sensory emotional creatures. Our rational capabilities came far later in life And so there are two fundamental layers. The notion that we are supposedly supremely rational is just not possible. And secondly, often this assumption that somehow, yes, women are the emotional decision makers, the guys are rational computers who digest facts and spit out results, and it's not true. All of us are emotional decision makers. That's why I think the breakthroughs in brain science are so fascinating and so liberating about understanding how you're going to connect with people.
0: I think that that alone is revelationary right there. Maybe men have been taught not to show how they feel, but it doesn't necessarily mean they don't feel when things are happening. So I think that's a major revelation. Bill Moyers called his hour, half hour with you, the most interesting half hour of social commentary on television I think I understand why. <laughs> Talk to us about the mistakes in advertisements. Well, the, the first
1: one I think is that you get caught up in a very rational approach that has historically been called being on message. That you're going to have this statement, this claim, then followed by that one and the next one, and you keep pushing these each of these, and so, supposedly if you build them up over the course of the commercial, you're going to have the devastatingly persuasive commercial it doesn't work that way. First of all human beings uh, cannot take in the the splattering of all these messages that often get jammed into a single commercial. Uh, We are tired, we are overwhelmed, we are moving quickly. The joke that has to be explained to you in life is never as funny as the joke you just get. Your emotional response happens five times faster than your rational reaction. So whether you engage people, whether you turn them on, uh, whether they believe you, those are the emotional dynamics of advertising and they are far greater in significance than being on message. I call it being on emotion. Do you create the right emotion at the right time in response to the right position to hit the right kind of audience? Emotional literacy is going to be the key to 21st century marketing because everybody feels saturated. But even in a saturated start state, because your emotions are so much more vibrant in terms of how you make decisions, if you can reach that pay you have a chance to succeed still.
0: It is said in your book that the ability and willingness to pay are often emotionally based. Tell us why that is.
1: Well, sh- sure. I mean, you, you know, ability to pay is supposedly finite, but I was in corporate life before. It's amazing if you get the right person in the company hierarchy involved in the project that suddenly the funds materialize. So you start out with this notion that I'm going to be a skinflint and hang on to my wallet or whatever. But the truth is those things that matter to you. I mean, historically, we you know this as wants versus needs. Those things you really want. And will make a difference about suddenly you will spend the money. So there are implicit ways in which businesses understood the role of emotions. Uh, there's customer satisfaction, for instance. But we have done it in such a, a pale way. And you know, again, you will you will spend the money on people that you trust and like. And if you apply this just moving outside of advertising to a sales situation, for instance, I think so often you think, okay, I'm going to get to the heart of the presentation. I'm going to lay out the facts. Then they will buy from me. There is plenty of evidence to show that that meeting, whether it's an interview or a sales pitch, could be over in the first 15 seconds to one minute because you decide whether you fundamentally like trust and therefore will buy from somebody. We do not buy from people we don't trust. And we don't tend to like people we don't trust. So establishing the emotional connection from the get-go is actually far greater in significance than the substance of the presentation.
0: Is that mostly subconscious, establishing that emotional connection? How does that occur?
1: Well, I I think a smart way if you're a salesperson is when you get to the room, you know, notice not just how you're going to try to echo their their volume of speaking or their word choices, but you can see it in how they they dress, you can see it in what's on their desk, how they decorate their office. Uh, There's a wonderful joke from uh, Oscar Wilde who said, only shallow people don't judge others based on appearances, (laughs) and it's true. There is a wealth of information about someone through those signals. Uh, understand, reflect, uh, appreciate where they come from, uh, you're going to be in a lot better shape.
0: What is going on with brain science today? And explain what the fMRIs are.
1: The breakthroughs in brain science, I mean, the the single factoid that sent me down this journey was a quote that said that the conservative estimation was that 95% of people's thought activity wasn't fully conscious. Uh, I just saw the New York Times two weeks ago that they've now uh, put a really specific number to it, 98%. Oh, my God. In other words, most of what goes on for us happens on an intuitive, subconscious level, and it's the sensory and the emotional parts of your brain, the two oldest parts of your brain, that really function at that basis. So in business sense, I think it's just absolutely amazing. You're going to go for 2% market share of the brain instead of 98%. Who, who would possibly want to do that in a business practice? Uh, likewise, the emotional part of the brain, which is about 200 million years old, sends 10 times as much data to the rational part of the brain, which is only 100,000 years old. So it's a trade imbalance. It's as if the emotional brain was China and the rational brain was Cuba. Now if you're going to play the percentages, which one of the business person do you want to go to? You want to grow your business by operating on the intuitive, emotional basis. Now, what the fMRI brain scans are doing in all of this is helping to document how these three parts of the brain work. I mean, the brain is the last frontier, and we are recognizing that the brain is not a linear progression like business would like to imagine. It is more like a pinball machine. And there are all these neurons firing connections forming at every moment. And you have to think about your brand and brand associations as a web, not a linear path.
0: When you talked about the oldest part of the brain, is that the hippocampus?
1: It is the the sensory part of the brain, which uh, is even older than the hippocampus. Then you're, talk, you're talking about the back of the brain, including uh, the visual cortex. Okay. Uh, 22.7% of the brain is exclusively devoted to processing visuals. That's why my company is called Sensory Logic because visuals are so powerful and so important. You make, I believe, in advertising, for instance, the emotional connection through the imagery. And then you close the deal by giving what's been called the intellectual alibi, the reasons to believe, the the rationalization, the justification, and you often do that through the words or the script. But you need the the one-two punch that starts with the visuals. So you're starting there, and then you add in the limbic system, and that's where you got the amygdala, for instance, which is your fear button in the brain, because quite honestly defending yourself is the bottom line for everyone, it's survival. And the rational brain, as I said, only 100,000 years old, it does not enjoy first-mover advantage. Pun intended, you know, thought, conscious thought is an afterthought in how people make decisions.
0: They found this out actually with remote viewing, that people actually make a lot of their decisions from the subconscious, and that the subconscious is often the key to everything, finding out everything. It has access to everything. The fMRI, explain to the public what it is.
1: The fMRI is is actually tracking blood flow in the brain. Uh, it is getting better and better. When I started my company in '98, you had about a six second gap. It means that you are placed inside a machine, like a a, a tube, and uh, it is you know reading those that blood flow in the brain. They've now brought it down, so it's only about one or two seconds off in timing. And it is able to, to map and look inside the brain. And, and it's most known from these color charts where you can see what parts of the brain are activating. Now, it's a fascinating tool, but from a daily business practice, it is not very practical. It's expensive and you are potentially claustrophobically shoved inside this tube. It's hard to do a question and answer session. So we use a tool called facial coding, which goes back to Charles Darwin. And it's recognition recognition that in the face you reflect and communicate your emotions, and it's the best vehicle for doing that. But the brain scans have been instrumental in helping to document how important emotions are to how people respond and react to the world.
0: I thought that was interesting that the responses come eight seconds after something's been shown to people in the brain. And and
1: that's on average, and, you know, that's the problem because it could be quicker or slower, and so you don't have real-time data. The face is the only place in the body where the muscles attach right to the skin, so it is quick, real-time data without having to artificially put sensors on people or shove them inside tubes or anything like that. We are we are all facial coders. That's why we want the in-person meeting with our boss to know where we really stand in life. But it's a way, what I really find it's valuable for in the end is it's a way to track and understand people's emotional response, where they buy in. Uh, because I think advertising, market research has been, utterly stuck in the Descartes mode of rationally asking people. And if you have never been lied to in life, congratulations. (laughs) And if you stick with that route, uh, there are things that people won't tell you. But most fascinating, I think there are things that people can't tell you because we now know how much of it's below the surface of the water, how much of it's subconscious.
0: You said everyone is a facial coder. Explain to the audience what a facial coder is.
1: Uh, A facial coder means that you, in a conversation, all of us instinctively will take in the facial muscle activity of the other person to use it to pick up signals of basically how do you stand with someone. Uh, LBJ, the former president, said if you can't walk into the room and know who's with you and who's against you, you ain't worth spit as a politician.
0: That's a Now
1: In in Blink uh, by Malcolm Gladwell, they use this on marriage counseling. And they have found that a contempt expression where the corner of the mouth curls up in a sign of disrespect and superiority to the other party is the most reliable indicator that a marriage will fail. And I think it's not a big stretch of imagination in business terms to say, you know what, the brand consumer is a relationship. And people's value system and their sense of whether or not they trust you and respect you is the fundamental glue that makes that work and so you don't wanna take them to a contempt level. So facial coding means that we are, um, in my company, as a daily practice, there's 43 muscles in the face, there are 23 combinations of muscle activity that correspond to seven different emotions that go across cultures. We're talking happiness, surprise, anger, fear, sadness, disgust, and contempt, and the killer thing that Charles Darwin first came to realize Even a person born blind, even a person born blind has the same facial expressions as you or I.
0: That's interesting. It's not
1: socialized. It's not learned. It's hardwired into the brain. A child by nine months of age has all the core emotions on their face.
0: That's fascinating.
1: Wow. It, It is fascinating. When I read that, quite honestly, I said, my God, this is the tool I'll be using for the rest of my life. And I was so excited that I went rollerblading along the beach in San Diego for the next two hours because I couldn't believe it.
0: What has been the biggest challenge bringing this information to businesses? What has been the greatest challenge of people receiving this properly?
1: Cognitive dissonance, because it fundamentally challenges their notion that uh, we are in control of our lives, that we understand our own thought process and that everything that we've ever done before is potentially imperiled. Uh, I was meeting with a, a major Fortune 100 company, and I was with two researchers. One person got where I was coming from, was fascinated, was very enthusiastic. The other person was scared to death, and that person said, if you're right, Dan, everything in my files is wrong. And my response was, in all honesty, uh, that that may well be true, because we now have a fundamentally different understanding of how people take in the world and make decisions. And so what I said to her was, uh, no fault of yours. Until I showed up, you worked with the tools as best you can. But going forward, you now know there's a new alternative and a new paradigm. And if you don't seize the opportunity, then that falls on your shoulders going forward.
0: How would this relate, for example, in people buying cars? Sometimes people are very price sensitive, et cetera, but I've seen people buy things they absolutely couldn't afford because they like the salesperson. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, I mean, definitely the salesperson is a factor. I uh, had a former brother-in-law who was a salesperson, and he was just a fundamentally good person, and he drove the other salespeople crazy because people would come into the store, and they would ask for Rolf, and they would just blew right past any other salesperson because they wanted somebody who wasn't going to spin them and push them into a sale. So you start with trust. But once we move on to the car, one of the really fascinating things about price is that a price just has to be heard to be pigeonholed. You know, too high, can't afford it, too low, cheap, good deal. But it's value over time that really drives a business and allows it to succeed. In other words, we take in all these sensory impressions, mostly subconsciously, and we're forming clues in a picture of, do we think this car works well? That's why things like, you know, how does it sound when you you close the door? You know, does it have a, a hollow sound to it? Does it feel feel good to you? Uh Yes, you know, even things like the color of the paint job. I mean, there are people who won't buy a car in, you know, these 19 colors, but these three are the ones that are possibilities. There is a whole wealth of ways in which we are taking in and appraising that car in our purchase, and we may not be aware of it, but together they form that picture of what we're willing to do. And I think the funny thing is that the companies think it's all these extra gigas of horsepower and so on. People have a really hard time assessing most of those things. Uh, It's the tangible things that we can take in and work with. And I think the companies should orient themselves to playing to the tangible where human beings reside, because otherwise you're just trying to sell the engineers and there aren't enough of those to be a major car company.
0: With regard to the facial coding work that you do, do you use a computer to do this?
1: No one has automated it to date. Uh, even the CIA and the FBI who use facial coding, everyone's had to do it on a manual basis. It takes us about five to seven minutes to do every 30 seconds of video, uh, including having to baseline the person. As George Orwell said, by the age of 50, a man is the face he deserves. <laughs> so some people are happy campers. Some people are grouches. You have to take that into account. Uh, the automation's going to come on. Uh, but, you know, it's going to come by degrees because, you know, say, for instance, someone's in a test and they wrinkle their nose. Well, what happens if they, if they sneeze two seconds later? You have to recognize that this probably was the first premonition of the sneeze, not a disgust reaction. So computers are going to have to be sensitive to context. And I think it will come on, uh, but it's just not there yet.
0: So with regard to selling into the emotional realm and understanding that clients are experiencing everything on an emotional realm, what does this mean in terms of functioning differently for salespeople and business organizations?
1: Well, I'm going to start with business organizations because one of the things I find most amazing is just how important a leader really is. Uh, there are studies out there that show that a chimpanzee will forego food in the jungle for an uninterrupted view of the leader. In other words, they want to know the leader of the pack's emotional temperament at any given moment because that signals whether they're safe or not safe and whether there's enjoyment there or not enjoyment. And there are other studies out there that now show that a CEO can change the performance level of a company by up to 30% and can be responsible for 50% of the corporate climate, so to speak, the emotional climate within a company. So it's infinitely amusing to me when they announce some business plan where they're going to buy XYZ company and they're hoping for a 3 or 5% lift in sales based on, quote unquote, the synergy of bringing the two businesses together. If only these leaders would put real emphasis on being uh, emotionally intelligent and connective and engaging for their employees... Because then you're not talking about a 3 or 5% bump. You're talking about as much as 30%. It absolutely dwarfs the kind of levels of, you know, increased productivity and therefore profitability that can be achieved through these, you know, more functional business deals. So really it's, it's an area where my experience, my father-in-law is a former CEO. My father was an executive. Uh, I've worked for two other CEOs directly. Uh, so many of them are there because they are good at finances. Uh, legal issues, operational issues. Uh, not a lot of them are there because they're people persons, and yet that might be the most important attribute they could bring to the job.
0: I'll tell you an interesting experience I had at age 26. I was brought into a $25 million research and development project called Protocol, and Bell Canada brought a team of 50 people down to Reston, Virginia, to launch what they considered to be a Century 21 concept in the telephone answering service industry, They had a 10,000 conversion rate interest. They wanted to convert 10,000 sites to this protocol concept. And they came in scaring the hell out of everybody in the industry. They worked fast. They were takeover type consciousness, the way they spoke to people. There was tremendous arrogance because all the money came from Bell that they couldn't lose. And of course, this concept with Century 21 worked. So of course, they could replicate it. And people hated them. They hated them. And I said to my then boss, there's no way by the way they're doing business, people go into business because they emotionally want to run their own business. They don't want to be taken over by a big company. And unless they treat them differently and talk to them differently and have a different business process, they're absolutely going to fail. And my then boss said to me, no way. Do you know how much money they have? I said, mark my words, they're going down. And guess what? In two years, they were taken out of the U.S. market. They couldn't grow fast enough. And there weren't enough people signing on because they had no emotional intelligence. Zero. Zero. Yeah, no, the the
1: emotional dynamics are absolutely crucial. I mean, how many how many wars have been fought in which the better armed, better financed, you know, better equipment comp, you know, army lost to somebody else who was driven by, you know, commitment to the cause and a sense of values and it gave them the emotional fuel to hang in there. Against what seem to be overwhelming odds. Uh, It's a dynamic that's way too often undervalued and missed and I think in executives to come in with a combination of probably the most toxic would be actually contempt and fear because it means you're going to dismiss or avoid other people and you're essentially isolating yourself and I agree with Thomas Friedman you know his thesis in The Lexus and the Olive Tree that the companies, the individuals, the countries that work best interconnect with other people. They learn from the exchanges, and they, they learn not just intellectually but emotionally what's salient for others. Uh, there's a joke in The New Yorker where two women are talking and one says the other, but enough about me. What do you think about me? <laughs> How many companies are like that? A lot. Is
0: that what you call the me story?
1: <laughs> that would be trying to get to the me story for the other party rather than your own me story endlessly, yes.
0: sure about that.
1: Well, I, I was seeking really in terms of customer service, right. and you know the truth is that customer service means we, we are going there at the point where we think we didn't get any service. We didn't get what we expected, and we probably pretty much feel like a fool, and we feel really vulnerable, because now we're up against the big entity, the company. we've given them the money, which is the thing we, we fear they most want, rather than giving us a good deal, and we're trying to get some justice. And it is a moment when you will absolutely have the customer's attention, and if you can fulfill or make good on what has gone bad, uh, you will have their, their gratitude. And um, you know Jeffrey Gittimer has the line about, "Don't give any customers a, a feeling you wouldn't want to have yourself." Bingo. Uh, but you know, who gets staffed into the customer service roles? A lot of times, it's the dead-end jobs to the people who aren't paid as well, and yet they're the ones who can give you the biggest bounce in return. I think companies would be very smart to put people into those roles who, first of all, enjoy that role. Second, who've been with the company for a while, who understand how the company works, the procedures, not just someone who is passing through really briefly and has no commitment to the company or the customer. And third, yeah, you should pay them a bit more. Uh, It's a really important job. And I think too often customer service people, I've spoken to some of their conferences, they are starved for funds within the company. They are seen as a cost center when, in fact, I think they're the frontline buttress to protect loyalty along with the people who design the offer originally.
0: I agree with you. You said in your book, Emotionomics, that... There's a deep-seated explanation for a prospect resistance are almost always emotional in nature. In other words, when a prospect is resisting, it's emotional in nature. And most salespeople and business organizations don't get that.
1: I think a lot of salespeople, and I was just talking to someone the other day, who's a good friend of mine. I like him. He's a, he's a really pretty good salesperson. But he just, he admitted to me, he said, I just love the hunt. And guess what? If you're the hunter, then someone's being hunted. And it's not a really great feeling as a prospect to be the hunted. Uh, That means once you get killed and begged and you're the trophy hanging from the wall, uh, you know, the deal's over. And you end up really worrying about, you know, where's the reciprocity and where's the relationship. And there's been a lot of, you know, buzz and BS about relationship-building models of sales. But I pretty much haven't seen it uh, really enacted. And the key thing is to go back to... Uh, People want to feel safe, and they want to feel comfortable. The person who comes after you uh, isn't going to make you feel very safe and really especially valued. You're only good to the extent that they can extract money from you. And uh, I mean, this myself, there are a few times where I tried so hard for a meeting, and I finally got it, and I probably was you know, too aggressive, too eager in the meeting. Uh, That doesn't make you a good listener. So I'm not suggesting I'm high and mighty and above everyone else and never made a mistake in life, but it behooves all of us to to slow down and listen a whole lot better.
0: Don't you think that a lot of the cultures in businesses who have been trained from the old guard of business about how to get a sale, they're still lingering in the old model? And therefore, to create these relationships and to take time for a customer to come in A lot of the sales organizations are not mentally run that way. They want it fast. They want it yesterday. And the thing is, that energy is in the vibration of the person who's selling. So they're taking whatever's in that department over there. So how do you see the retraining of the mind of the sales managers and who they're reporting to?
1: Well, I I think they're going to have to to fundamentally start over. And I think they should start over with, with the breakthroughs in the brain science. Uh, people have four motivations, uh, as suggested by two Harvard professors who are organizational psych people. And that's to defend ourselves, but it's also to acquire, to bond, and to learn. And the salesperson is only coming pretty, pretty much from, you know, I'm going to acquire money for myself, which throws the prospect into the defend myself thing, when in fact learning about the offer and bonding so it's, re- it's a sales relationship would be so much better. And so without that emotional intelligence, I, mean, I, I was meeting with one company, an insurance company. said, oh, yeah, we we do the emotions part. We, we recognize emotions are important. I said, oh, really? That's great. Uh, tell me some specifics. Well, there was this deafening silence that followed. And I thought to myself, no, no, you, you haven't really retooled at all. This, this is merely lip service. This is what I call the Casablanca effect. Round up the usual suspects. And so they they do need to start over, and uh, I'm waiting for the day it happens.
0: Let's talk about companies exuding a personality and branding. Your work with facial coding and body language and brain science, how is it going to redirect our understanding of how branding should be?
1: There are three emotional triggers, essentially, in your relationship with the consumer. Uh, First one is just the immediate stimuli and so that can be how you package the offer the you know store environment you know the advertising and that's fine but it tends to be a bit more transient as you move on to the the brand and the projected way in which you're going to connect with people two things emerge one is your value system uh what are you known for as a company i mean apple of course has done this brilliantly you know the whole think different thing has over the years projected them as someone who wanted to be iconoclastic uh, wanted to be able to uh, promise you that it's not just business as usual, but the other one is the personality. If we, I've applied a lot of this to politics, for instance, because the candidate is the is the package, is the offer ultimately. In most, you know, usually Democrat or Republican, it doesn't matter. There's only a small spectrum of difference between the candidates on the positions, but how they're going to operate as a leader or as a projected brand for what they're trying to do means you're looking at how they emote over time if someone emotes and shows a lot of anger uh we tend to call them a hothead for instance if they show a lot of sneering uh you know they kind of come across as snidely whiplash and you know, it's hard for us to warm up to such a person and so it's the projected brand personality that can come from the ceo it can come from the spokesperson on the air it can come from a a brand icon for instance Uh, I'll give you a quick kind of fun example. I was in the grocery store and I was looking at one of the packages and I went, wow, General Mills has replaced Betty Crocker with a spoon. So I went home, I went online, I looked up all the old Betty Crockers and over the last century plus, there have been seven Betty Crockers and never once in any of those did she ever smile. Wow. I went, wow, wasn't she supposed to be the happy housewife? How could you never actually have her happy? And then I concluded that changing her into a spoon was probably okay, given the fact that she didn't have a smile on her face.
0: <laughs> as long as she doesn't hit you with the spoon. As <laughs> long you
1: know, she doesn't hit you with the spoon, yeah. Exactly.
0: You did an article, and I don't remember where, but you will, and it was about Obama's facial expressions. I thought that was a great article. Do you remember the name of that article?
1: Well, I just posted one recently for for Fox uh, because Obama was famous during the presidential race talking about the bitter voters in small-town America. And although he has a great true smile and it was very evident on the campaign trail, his and Huckabee's were the great true smiles of the 2008 race, uh, Obama's not smiling a lot lately. Uh, he really used to project cool confidence, and now he's struggling to contain uh just – Basically being vexed. And uh, as someone who wants to position himself as a great compromiser, uh, it, you've know you got to be careful. If you're spewing venom and attacking liberal Democrats as being sanctimonious and Republicans as being hostage takers, uh, that's a lot of scorched earth. Uh, where are you going to stand?
0: But in his face, you did a lot about his face versus what he's saying. Do you remember that?
1: Yes. Well, he, for instance, I mean, he does have a great true smile, and the, the great true smile means that the the muscle around the eye relaxes, is why you get the twinkle in the eye. Right. He was very careful as a campaigner not to overdo that and go into a, a fake kind of cheesy smile. Uh, there were other candidates who would hold the smile way too long, it's not natural. A smile is usually on and off the face within four seconds or less, or they would flash the smile onto their face and then it would suddenly disappear, which is not natural. On the other hand, you know, Obama doesn't emote as much as you might think for a guy who positioned his campaign on hope. And he has a tendency to sometimes literally cock his head back and look down his nose at people. And he can show some contempt on his face.
0: I see that. Or, I definitely see
1: or that. Or he'll curl the upper lip in disgust or very recently, uh, when he's really embittered and frustrated, he'll have what is called an upside down smile where you, you push the, you know, your chin uh, upwards and then the corners of the mouth are drooping down. Uh, and he's even kind of gotten, you know, like a puffy lower lip because you're really exasperated and you got a tension that's playing across the lower lip. So he uh, was pretty smooth as a campaigner and as a president, uh, he's a lot less smooth.
0: Do you feel that his brand If you will, I know he's a political leader, but do you feel that Obama, the brand, is obvious to the people who love him and care about him and agree with him?
1: Well, the the debate that's going on right now, and I listened carefully on NPR yesterday as they were talking about triangulation and whether he's going to pull off what Clinton was seeking to do and perhaps accomplished uh, earlier um but then the question is you know do people know where you're coming from ultimately is there an underlying value system if you are endlessly pragmatic um you know then there's still a question whether you're FDR or Reagan or anybody else you know how do people understand you who are you on the underlying basis despite the you know the tactical decisions you might make to make compromises and move an agenda forward and it's the value proposition and the values that you have that really make people have an allegiance to you. And so, uh, I think that's the risk for him right now. So is the brand, uh, damaged? Um, I would have to say that it is, uh, whether it's fatal, uh, will probably depend in part on how the economy does. Uh, to his benefit probably is the fact that a whole lot of politicians, uh, are not very good emotionally either. Uh, it was pretty devastating when I watched them all up close from both parties in 2008. Uh, there was only a small number of them that were frankly impressive and a lot of them. I mean, I remember one who just was stone cold deaf when it came to talking <laughs> to a voter. It was in Iowa and he, he, he was like the worst listener I'd ever, I'd ever witnessed in my life. And I thought, how can you possibly get to the White House if you can't even hold a civil, engaging, reciprocal conversation with a, a voter who's a, a fan of yours.
0: It's interesting. It's almost like a paradox. A lot of the politicians have contempt for the public because they need them and they don't want to need them. You know what I'm saying? And so sometimes there's this subconscious contempt and you can see it.
1: You can see it all the time. I mean it is the most common emotion, probably even more than anger on the face of the politicians. Uh you know, Lieberman almost has contempt surgically implanted
0: <laughs> into his
1: face for instance. <laughs> But but He's not the only one. And it it goes across the political spectrum. So whatever liabilities Obama is facing right now, they may not be fatal, in part because uh, whoever he faces, uh, presuming he's running again, uh, may be really challenged to keep the contempt off their face.
0: All right. I have one question about the infamous Julian Assange and his face. What do you see there and what is the brand of WikiLeaks translate to you who's an expert in facial coding?
1: Um, that is an excellent question, and I just the other day was trying to look at the photograph of him in the car in London when he surrendered. right and and trying to understand what his expression was, but it wasn't well lit. The other days when I've looked at him, uh, there is a there's a disgust, which would make sense because I've often seen in progressives that they will – the corners of the mouth will go down and out. It's a bitter expression. It makes perfect sense to a, quote-unquote, green candidate who doesn't find the status quo acceptable. Right. wants to change because bitter as a feeling means bad taste, bad smell. Uh, you know, I'm rejecting it. And the anger is an emotion means you're gonna move. you're gonna make something happen. Well, clearly, to put out all of those leaks is trying to create a tidal wave and the you know we've seen now that there are people who are helping to attack the websites of those who um you know are are disavowing or disconnecting themselves from WikiLeaks, and it's turning into a gigantic internet battle, and it'll be fascinating so it's it's clearly a rogue brand. And, uh, it does have a, a, value system to it, whether people, you know, uniformly like it or dislike it. We know where the U.S. government would stand, And since they've been deeply embarrassed by some of the things that have been leaked. And people never forgive you for embarrassing them. Uh, because then there's a social dim, not only is there your own personal feelings, there's a social dimension that I've been shamed in front of others. And it's, it's deeply wounding. And, uh, so, Will the U.S. try to extradite him? Oh, I think so.
0: (laughs) I think so, too. Martin Lindstrom, the author of Brand Sense and Brand Child, wrote some very nice things about you in the opening of the book. He says emotionomics leads the global business mindset into a new paradigm, one that demands and rewards sensory and emotional connections between the 21st century corporate entity and its consumers. Dan Hill's expertise guides business in securing the bonds of empathy that will drive commercial growth over the coming years. How is your work focused differently or similarly to Martin Lindstrom's? And have you read those books of his?
1: Oh, I, I have read his books. Uh, I mean, my my first book was put out by John Wiley called Body of Truth, and it preceded a book that he then wrote uh, on the, the sensory realm. And then I pu- published Emotionomics, and he came back with The Buying Brain. And so, I mean, he's a very good popularizer. But I think he doesn't actually have a tool that allows him. If you look at both of these, uh, the and the emotional, and I mean no disrespect, but it kind of goes back to my comment about sure. the woman at the at the big corporation who was threatened by my tool. I don't think Martin Mar- – Martin is a progressive thinker, and I don't think he was threatened by my tool. But if you look at his studies, particularly the earlier book on the senses, it's all based on rational data. Uh you know, essentially asking people regarding how they re- react to sensory engagement with products and design. And people don't think their feelings, they feel them. Now, in the latest book on the buying brain, he did... Uh, was
0: that his book or, or Pradeep's?
1: Yeah, no, Pradeep has, has published a book with, this, with the buying brain. I'm trying to remember, maybe I have the title wrong on okay. Martin Lindstrom. Yeah, yeah,
0: that was Dr. Pradeep who wrote the buying brain.
1: Yeah, but there's also, let's see, what is Lindstrom's book... Uh child, well, brain... biology, of course. Yes. Yeah.
0: Oh, biology. But, that's
1: right. Yeah. But biology is is was reporting to use EEG, uh, which is what Pradeep's company NeuroFocus uses. But um, if you looked closely and started reading biology, you, you found that, uh, you know, there really wasn't much fMRI or even EEG. There was still a lot of fairly traditional research done, and the fMRI, which is way too expensive, was not the predominant tool. And the the learnings from it, I mean, there wasn't a kind of ch- charts and, and in-depth stuff. I mean, he's not a day-in, day-out practitioner, and right? I give me no disrespect. But,
0: oh, I totally understand.
1: But every every day we're trying to say, okay, let's use this tool and let's develop norms and let's be very careful about artifact. And, um, well, I think the book helps to create the tidal wave, which is great, and change the mindset uh, from a practitioner's point of business. It's not really there.
0: What is brand equity to you? Brand
1: equity uh, really is about, you know, what's the long-term loyalty and emotional connection you feel to something? How much are you going to stay with it? And so uh, we, we were su- surprised, for instance, you look at Marlboro Man. This has been off the air for 25 years. And yet Marlboro Man, because it has not necessarily cigarettes, but the whole ethos of the West and being the independent cowboy – Allows Marlboro to still have incredible emotional resonance, and that's what brand equity means to me. It's not about awareness. I mean, I'm aware of Saddam Hussein, but I'm not going to buy from him. Right. Awareness is not the way you build brand equity. It's loyalty and preference and allegiance.
0: I think you're recontextualizing what it is for us. I'm trying. Yeah, (laughs) I can hear it. You say that new offers fail ninety percent of the time. Why? I think because
1: they start with an inside out. Focus. It's the company trying to figure out what claims or new features they want to build in, and it's the marketer and probably most of all the engineer and the designer who are creating the what I call the love child, where it's it's key for them or what they love to to create. But if it doesn't connect to the audience, you don't really actually have a business.
0: Why are we buying iPads? (laughs) Um,
1: (laughs) I I think they're great. Um, I do too. Why are
0: we buying them? Why not buy a little laptop? What is the branding of this? Explain it to me.
1: Well, Jobs is one of the most successful branders, quite obviously. It starts with Think Different. It starts with Apple. It starts with a CEO who has a defined personality who's dared to introduce color and design into the computer world. Uh, you have the little I in iPad, so you're playing to the me, uh, the consumer. Uh, I mean, it just it just works on a lot of different levels.
0: Do you own an iPad?
1: No, I don't, <laughs> but I'm thinking about buying one.
0: I am too. God help us all. <laughs> So is there anything you want to say in closing for right now?
1: Uh, No, besides it was a wonderful chance to talk.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, we have been listening to, learning from, and talking with Dan Hill. He is the author of the book Emotionomics, Leveraging Emotions for Business Success, and also of the book About Face, The Secrets of Emotional Effective Advertising. He has other books. You can go to his website. Dan, say your website address.
1: Uh, The website is The Obligatory Three W's and SensoryLogic.com.
0: Thank you so much for being with us.
1: Of course. Thank you. I'll talk to you
0: again soon, Dan. Bye-bye.